I'm Jared Murphy from CityLimits.org. And this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Jared, how are you doing? Good to see you. You too. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Yeah, still we're say back. Eight uh, days in. Yeah, you have a good window of a month or so, I think. I so. think. I'm still writing 2019 on my checks. So. I haven't written a check since uh, 1985. <laughs> um, so state of the state, big day. Big day, uh, sort of a table setting for the legislative agenda, the budget agenda, basically what's going to define uh, policymaking in the state for the next oh, five, or, five or six months. For those who weren't paying very close attention like we were, Governor Cuomo just delivered his 10th, 10th state of the state address as governor uh, in Albany this afternoon, really just wrapped up an hour or two ago. Uh, we were watching. We were paying attention. We're going to break it all down here today and in just a little bit we're going to be joined by one of the most important players in the state legislature state senator liz krueger a manhattan democrat who also chairs the state senate finance committee senator krueger will be returning to the program and we'll get her thoughts on the governor's state of the state and much more but governor cuomo spoke for quite a while as he usually does giving his state of the state speech as you mentioned the choppy waters uh or the smooth sailing ahead the governor seemed to indicate a little bit of both uh he talked about the fact that um he believes that the state of the state is very strong but is facing a lot of challenges many of which of course out of his control but he then needs to act and lead the state to uh to fight against them. And of course, in New York State, typically, uh, a couple of years he's broken from this, typically the state of the state is separated from the budget address, which comes just a week or so later, and tends to have more of the nitty-gritty detail. And I suspect what we'll be talking about really for most of this winter and spring is what is contained in, in that speech. We really just got the broad outlines today. It, it was, uh, as you said, a very long speech. Um, I don't think, you know, he, he tripped over his words a few times. It wasn't his best um, delivery. As has become the style with Andrew Cuomo, State of the State speeches, he spent uh, a number of, of minutes, um, many, many minutes on his policy prescriptions for the year, then kind of rattled off literally a laundry list, um, a staccato of accomplishments, flashing pictures on the screen of various bridges and airports built with uh, with with state money, with his money, uh, and then and then devoted the last, I don't know, 10 minutes or so to a sort of moral section where he talked about uh, disunity and polarization in the country. And as is kind of his style made, I think, a, a kind of unassailable point, um, repeatedly at and at high uh volume which is sort of the the Cuomo the Cuomo shtick. Yeah, he had a rousing finish to the speech that got back to how he started it and some of the rough waters that he talked about the state facing relate to increases in hate crimes, especially anti-Semitic attacks. The attack that occurred during Hanukkah in Muncie um, was front and center of today, not only in the governor's speech, but also in the state Senate, where a rabbi from, from Muncie gave an invocation to start the state Senate session that was briefly held today before the governor's speech as the legislature gets back to work. So those are sort of the bookends of the governor's speech, but also in between, as you said, many, many proposals mentioned, most of them very brief and quick, although he puts out a very detailed policy book uh, each year with the proposals fleshed out a bit more. And then, of course, also the list of accomplishments and projects underway. And, you know, the governor went through 
uh, quickly this very long list of infrastructure investments and things like that to you know sort of give the impression that there's really a lot happening in New York and that the state is spurring a lot of growth and and that is true to a significant extent of course there's always major investments in parks and uh, transit and other infrastructure the governor briefly mentioned the MTA capital plan that it was recently passed that we've discussed over 50 billion dollars. But in terms of his agenda for the year, I mean, that's a lot of what the focus is on. Of course, he can tout the accomplishments and the investments that are already underway. But what we want is sort of the news of the day, which is what he wants to do this year. And he gets to set the agenda in a very big way as the governor with his state of the state. And then, as you mentioned, with this upcoming budget speech that is going to get a lot of attention because he barely mentioned today that the state is facing the $6.1 billion budget deficit for the next fiscal year, which begins April 1st. And I don't even think he got to it. In the weeks preceding the speech, he's been releasing proposals one by one. I think he got to 34 or so. And I don't believe all of them were even brushed against during the speech. Some of them certainly were. Uh, for example, his proposal to ban uh, repeat offenders from the subways, which is a controversial idea. Um, some of his other uh, proposals certainly were in there, but, but a lot more territory for him to cover in that budget speech and beyond. But let's talk about some of the specifics that he did get to, and there were many, many of them. One of the ones that kind of jumped out at me as being truly uh, new to the Cuomo agenda is uh, something he said about the gig economy relatively early in the speech. Let's play that clip now. Too many corporations are increasing their profits at the expense of the employee and the taxpayer, and that must end. A driver... A driver is not an independent contractor simply because she drives her own car on the job. A newspaper carrier is not an independent contractor because they ride their own bicycle. A domestic worker is not an independent contractor because she brings her own broom and mop to the job. It is exploitive, abusive, it's a scam, it's a fraud, it must stop. And it has to stop here and now. So I, I was intrigued by that. I didn't see that uh, uh, necessarily uh, uh, coming, uh, at least not over not over the course of Cuomo's uh, time in office. Certainly an issue a lot of people have talked about and raised, an issue that perhaps you know Cuomo has always had a, an interesting relationship, but uh, ultimately I think a productive one for him anyway, with labor unions who obviously are, are obviously threatened by the gig economy. But I was fascinated by this. What it says in the, in the material associated with the speech is simply that the governor is going to introduce legislation to make sure New Yorkers receive basic employee protections. In other words, that those can't be um, es- escaped or eclipsed for people who are in the gig economy. Right. We'll see what the details on that look like. So we've we've done a little bit of reporting on this. And a couple years back, New York City passed regulations to ensure that workers in the gig economy have some protections around getting paid for their work and contracts and not being delayed payment for for years and years. Um, And the state did not follow through to replicate that statewide, but the city passed some protections and the city followed up on them um, with some very specific to the for hire vehicle industry uh, more recently. 
in Governor Cuomo's end of 2018 first 100 days speech for his 2019 agenda, this is when he was reelected to a third term late in 2018, he gave a speech. He mentioned this very briefly, very brief mention of gig economy, freelance workers, and then didn't do anything about it in 2019. So now he's back again with it in 2020, and we'll see if it really does become a focus area. For him to highlight it, you know, he, he does go through a lot in the speech, but he doesn't touch everything that's in the policy book. So for him to highlight it again seems to indicate that it would be something that he's really looking to take action on. We'll see. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because it, it is a, a topic that touches on a lot of growth industries in this state uh, that depend on, on gig economy labor, depending on how you define that. And I, I would not exempt our own industry from, from that. Certainly Absolutely. freelance, freelance reporters or photographers and editors and technicians of various types powering much of the work that, uh, that we, we read and, and maybe some that we even publish ourselves. Um, so an interesting, uh, targeting by the governor there. He also talked about, as every governor has in every state of the state speech, immemorial education. Mm-hmm. And, uh, this was, uh, a clip that we want to play of him discussing education funding and how it is distributed in the state. Education is the civil rights issue of our time. And we should be proud that we invest more per student than any state in the nation. But at the same time, let's be honest, it is shameful that we do not distribute the funding in the most progressive way. We use complicated funding formulas to disguise the ugly truth. The reality is wealthier districts have much higher funded schools than poorer districts. That's the fact. That is the truth. In our state, wealthier schools spend as much as $36,000 per student. In a poorer school, we spend as little as $13,000 per student. The progressive path is clear. Use our state funds to reduce the funding disparities. Our state funds are only 40% of the funding. 60% of the funding comes from local taxes. If we're the progressive capital, and we want to beat our chest and say we're the progressive capital, then act that way. And don't play politics with education money. Use state funds to raise those at the bottom. Use state funds to raise those at the bottom. Use state funds to raise those at the bottom. Fund the poorer schools and close the education gap. And let's do it this year. So that to me was potentially the main idea there, by the way, was fund the schools at the bottom. If anyone missed that, (laughs) that to me was potentially the most interesting part of the entire speech and sets up, I think, potentially maybe the biggest battle that could be at hand this legislative session in Albany, because it relates to a couple things. One, he didn't make the direct connection, but it, of course, relates to this budget gap. Right. He can potentially set himself up to make a progressive argument to actually reduce the overall amount of state education funding that goes out the door. He probably won't do that, but he could or he might argue we're going to keep the amount the same, which would be a a, a big uh, effort on its own because every year it increased 
typically by at least a billion dollars in state funding that goes out to localities. But he could even argue, okay, we're facing this deficit. Let's keep the amount of education funding the same, but we're going to change the formula to, as he said, fund the poorer schools. Uh, that could set up huge battles The uh, because the other piece of the context is that what we're really getting at is the suburban districts, Long Island, north of New York City, some other places in the state where property taxes are high. They spend a lot of money on local schools. So they, as he said, they take the state money and then they add a whole lot more to it from local property taxes. And he would really be talking about key pieces of his political base not getting as much state funding, which I find fascinating. That is what I am fascinated to see the details for, because this, to some degree, echoes a topic he raised last year, which was about within districts, including mainly the larger districts like the big cities, Yonkers, and obviously New York City. He alleged that those districts did not properly split up the funding they got from the state among their own schools, among wealthier and poorer schools within those districts. He said basically last year that there was enough money in the system. It was just being poorly distributed within those big city districts. That obviously was a, a controversial contention. Um, it also was controversial to, to accept the idea that we had enough uh, education funding because if that were the case, why did we start state casinos to, to pour my money into that pot that allegedly was full enough, but that's a topic for a different time. But so I'm not sure whether he is looking to continue litigating that fight or, as you say, put on the table the issue of wealthy suburban districts getting state money versus uh, poorer districts. I think it's quite likely we're going to see both of those because – one, he didn't get very far with some of the adjustments he started pushing last year, but I also don't think he pushed very hard for them. But one thing he did push was more reporting requirements from the larger school districts, including New York City, for how they distribute state aid to individual schools and whether those funding mechanisms make sense in terms of, as he outlined, what a progressive system would look like where the poorer schools, the lower performing schools get a higher proportion of the funding that's going going out. So it'll be interesting where he chooses to really pursue his battles on those two fronts of the education funding uh, war. And of course, there's already the Board of Regents asking for at least $2 billion more this year in state education funding. The state legislative houses will probably put out proposals very similar to that. He will probably, in his budget, put out something much less, like I said, maybe even something close to flat. That would probably be a stretch, but maybe he'll go there as a negotiation point, and then we'll see where it goes from there. The $6 billion elephant in the room for this today's speech is this budget gap mainly attributed to Medicaid, and that was uh, a relatively brief, given the dollar signs attached to it, portion of the speech. But but along uh, but a law and we're going to hear the clip from Cuomo in a second. But along with the education funding aspect, you know, probably the two those are the two big pieces of the state budget. They're the two biggest chunks. So those are the two pieces of the speech today that set him up for his budget presentation and the most controversial aspects. And here's what the governor said: "Miss federal cuts, and we must correct for cost increases occurred incurred when local governments were held harmless by the state for Medicaid increases." Remember what we did. Six years ago, we froze the cost of Medicaid to local governments to help those local governments meet their property tax cap. For six years, we have been paying all the increased costs in local Medicaid spending and holding the local governments harmless. This year alone, we will spend $4 billion 
in covering the increase in the local government share. We're paying $177 million on behalf of Erie, $175 million on behalf of Westchester, $2 billion on behalf of the city of New York to cover their local costs. Also, the local governments still administer the program, even though they no longer share the costs. And we have seen dramatically higher cost increases recently. Why? You can't separate administration from accountability. It is too easy to write a check when you don't sign it. Just ask my daughters who are here today. <laughs> the situation is on. I'm going to pay for that later. That was a joke. It was a joke. 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 The situation is unsustainable. We have restructured Medicaid before with our MRT program, and we're going to have to do it again this year, and we will, and we can. The MRT program actually made Medicaid better than ever before, and we will do that once again this year. So that was the governor's explanation for the uh, large gap in Medicaid. Now there obviously was a problem in the budget that was passed this year. The governor did not openly discuss it with the legislature, basically pushed that forward. And so now we have this huge amount of money that we have to come up with. And I would say it's a very complicated issue. We don't have a lot of time to talk about it. But his explanation is probably fairly uh, cynical and inaccurate for why we are in the situation uh, we're in now. You know, the fact that the state took over the increase in local Medicaid costs really reflects the fact that New York State has always had an unusually high local share of its Medicaid spending, which is supposed to be a, a joint state-federal program. Um, and the cost drivers that have been identified in, in what I've read anyway – aren't about decisions that localities have made. They're about decisions that the state has made about how it operates the program. Uh, let me say a couple. I think you're you're right on there, and we'll dig into this on another show, certainly, um, and we'll get Senator Liz Kruger, who chairs the Senate Finance Committee. We'll get her take momentarily on, on a lot of this, but I'll just say quickly um, – one thing is that the state has this $6.1 billion budget deficit, but folks should know that virtually every year the state ha is facing a gap of several billion dollars because those project what you know certain increases would look like, and the governor almost always is able to close those by reducing those spending projections um, you know, with some of his typical budgeting mechanisms. Um, but this is unusually high, and a lot of it is, as you said, because of Medicaid. And there's multiple apparent drivers to it. One of them has been the state's um, increase in the minimum wage, which many have seen, of course, as a positive development, but that the state and the Medicaid program need to account for in different ways than they have. So we'll, we'll come back to that another time. We'll get uh, Senator Kruger's take on that, too. We're going to keep discussing the governor's state of the state, his 2020 agenda and what's happening with the governor and the legislature. Again, want to stress for folks, though, you know, the governor puts out a state of the state policy booklet with hundreds of proposals. We're only touching on some of them, things that, you know, piqued our interest, things that are obviously big issues like education funding, Medicaid spending. The other piece on the Medicaid is that he's setting up a discussion to try to push more costs from the state to localities. And New York City would, of course, be um, at the top of that target list, as it has been in the past for the governor. So I think we have State Senator Liz Kruger on the line now, and let's bring her on. Senator Kruger, welcome back to WBAI and Max and Murphy. Thanks for joining us. Well, I'm up here in Albany for day one of the action, and we obviously just 
listen to the governor's state of the state, and I appreciate your pointing out he had hundreds of proposals. The book itself that people can now find online, I think, is 304 pages of proposals. So the things he actually covered in the speech is just a small piece of the entire package, and I'm not going to lie to you. I have not read those 304 pages <laughs> yet. I just got done with a couple of receptions that happen after the State of the State each year. Same here. Uh, that's the case for, for many of us, all of us, so everybody should take our conversation with a little bit of a grain of salt, of course. Um, yes. But tell us also some of the things that most prominently stuck out to you from the governor's speech, things that you either heard or didn't hear that you wanted to. So I was pleased to hear of his very serious um, expanded commitment to combating climate change. And basically, we've done some really important legislation, and now we need to put the money in to get things done. So he talked about a bond act for $3 billion that he's calling a Restore Mother Nature Bond Act, but it's basically money to invest in sustaining and resiliency of our land and our water, which is a critical part of New York's assignment in climate change. Um, he did not talk enough about the money we need to invest in the transition um, to a green economy where we've done the legislation and we have a mandate to get to 70 percent sustainable and renewable energy sources in a very short period of time. So he did reference expanded electrical, electric vehicles, um, green economy tax credits, um, retrofitting with carbon emissions, um, and offshore wind. I am a supporter of all those things. Some of them need money, so it will be fascinating to see you know, how he handles all this in relationship to his budget release, which was not today, but has to be by January 21st and hopefully earlier. Um, so there was a lot for people who are following climate change, environmental change, and sustainability. There's a lot of meat to get into, and the devil's always in the details. Um, I've carried a bill to end single-use styrofoam packaging for probably a decade, so I am excited to see that that is a commitment of his. Um, I never worry about who takes credit. I'm always excited about getting things done. So if we are going to get rid of styrofoam, which is a huge percentage of the solid waste problem in our state, lasts for thousands of years, breaks down into dangerous chemicals, and does not get nearly enough attention, attention I'd be very happy. Um, of course, we also heard not enough yet, but about the reality of Medicaid and health care costs seeming to be most of the $6.4 billion deficit we are facing. And I just heard you, you know, say there are a bunch of different reasons for that. You are absolutely right. If you raise minimum wage, all those workers who work in programs that are funded by Medicaid have to get paid more and should get paid more, which increases the cost of the state to pay the workers. We also did a huge and successful drive in New York State around Obamacare ACA, 
where we did outreach urging people to come to our exchange and learn which form of insurance coverage would be best suited for them at most reasonable price. And he took credit for that today also and talked about 95% of New Yorkers now being insured, and that's very good news. But a little detail that nobody mentioned was of the people who came on board and joined in through the health exchange, 40% of them joined Medicaid because they were eligible. They'd always been eligible. They didn't know. Now they knew, and they were being signed up for Medicaid. So we have significantly more people on Medicaid because... They're eligible, and it's terrific health insurance. So maybe we didn't plan for it, but this is what happened, and it's a significant part of the explanation for why New York State has one of the highest rates of insured population. Just just quickly on that, um, yep. where, in from your vantage point, again, you're Senate uh, Finance Chair as well as a longtime senator and expert on many of these things. From your vantage point, where does the the missed projection, the the mistakes in planning, where does that lie? Who who missed that? Was did did the legislature miss that? Did was the governor's budget office uh, not completely transparent? What happened? Oh, I think probably everybody can share in the blame, but by and large, it is the governor's budget office who proposes the budget and gets what they want because the governor has such control of the budget process. Um, so. I don't know if it was if somebody missed it. I, you know, I'm constantly amazed that people, like, how did so many more people show up on Medicaid? And I'm like, I don't know. Don't you read that report over there that you get that shows who, where they're getting signed up when they go to the New York Exchange? Because they say it right there, 40% coming to Medicaid. That's got to mean more people on Medicaid. That's got to mean a greater Medicaid cost. Now, I don't personally think that's a problem, because it helps us be able to explain how we were able to get so many people insured. We actually, most of us do believe that preventive care, primary care that, that you only can get if you actually have health insurance is a good thing for the public at large. Many of us are supporters of some version of single-payer universal health care. And Medicaid is a pretty good model of that for people below a certain income. So the fact that we have jump-started moving to Medicaid for all um, in New York isn't necessarily a bad thing in any way. It's just a reality to confront when you are projecting out how much money you're going to need for health insurance costs. Senator, uh, your voice is coming through a little quietly on our end. If you could speak up a little bit, just pretend you're angry at Ben and raise your voice and we'll make sure <laughs> you get heard. You mentioned Sorry. earlier that obviously you're in Albany for the start of all the action. Right now, the, the frame for our talking today is the governor's speech, but but he's only one part of the equation. And 2019 certainly proved that, that his agenda is not the only one that dictates what's going to happen in Albany. And why don't you take a few minutes before we return to some of the topics the governor talked about to talk about the Senate Democrats and what's on what's on your agenda. There's no there's no equivalent to a state of the state for for your body uh, for the body politic. But uh, talk about what you see on the to do list for for 2020. Great. Well, we're starting tomorrow with a package of bills expanding um, on voter rights. We did a whole package on improving access to voting and voting rights last year. Um, as the beginning of our session, and 
Now we're a year down the line, so we have more bills that we intend to pass relating to expanded access to voting and improvements in early voting. So for people who want to take a look, tomorrow we'll be passing, I believe, nine or ten bills, um, making sure that we have a system for automatic voter registration, that when we when we started early voting, apparently we forgot to tell the largest municipalities in the country they had to participate in the state, that they had to participate. So we're, go- we're going to be requiring major municipalities to have early voting sites. We're going to be um, expanding the ability to do uh, mobile polling locations in the rural areas to help them with early voting. And a bill of mine we're going to pass is exempting public schools from being early voting locations because we love early voting, but it turns out you can't ask schools to pretty much stop using their cafeterias, auditoriums, and public spaces 11 days in a row, three times a year. Um, So we expand the ability of election boards to have access to non-school buildings, anybody who has tax revenue um, paid to them, or our city and government properties to be first priority going to voting, because we know we like early voting and we know we want to expand on it to improve more people voting, but we can't really ask the schools to take on this burden so many days of the year. Um, So that'll be tomorrow. We have a serious commitment in my conference Um, to really take a hard look at how economic development funds are spent or not spent appropriately and try to make sure we are investing in the development of jobs um, in small and medium-sized businesses, not the mega projects that usually blow up in our faces. Um, We have a real commitment to improved education funding where the needs are the greatest and that's not just K through 12 but that's pre-K through college. The governor said some things that were positive about the importance of more education monies going to poorer districts and he made some statements about improving the opportunity or expanding the opportunity programs at our colleges which have been so underfunded, but also so successful. So some of the statements the governor made today were very much consistent with what my conference is going to be working on. It's always the devil's in the details. My conference is very committed to a bill of mine, um, which is the Housing Stability Support Program, which would provide rent subsidies to families either at risk of homelessness or actually homeless and not able to get into an apartment. Um, We think it's critical. The city of New York thinks it's critical. The governor has not supported it in the past. He made some statements about much greater investments in fighting homelessness and investing in affordable housing. So I don't know if we're talking the same thing um, or we're talking around each other, but I know that that's a very significant um, priority for 
my conference. Senator, one topic that has been raised a lot in the weeks running up to the start of this session is the question of whether the bail reform enacted last year uh, will be revisited, should be revisited, and if so, how. I don't think that's something the governor directly addressed today. I think it's something he may have made some comments on recently before the speech. Uh, can you talk about what you're hearing and, and what you think the outlook is? How likely is it that that law will be opened up again and what the scope of that review might look like? No, I think we're all really at the beginning of that. I mean, there are people who say the world's ending, and there are other people saying it's the 7th or 8th of January. It's not clear anything has changed or been a problem anywhere in the first eight days of this law being in effect. I don't think that in either house of the legislature there's or an appetite for a dramatic change in what we just put into law. Um, there may be some adjustments that should be considered. Um, but I actually don't think I could tell you that there is unity about any specific change at this point. Just just one more on that, and then I want to follow up on, on sure. a couple of things you said about um, your priorities. Um it seems like the two big questions really are, will the list of bailable offenses be changed to add more things back into it, and or will a standard of dangerousness, you know, judicial discretion around dangerousness um, be applied in New York where it hasn't been, and in New York is a big outlier on that. Do either of those sound – it sounds like the discussion has been more on the former, adding some offenses back into the list of bailable offenses – do you have an indication of where that discussion is right now, at least with your, your colleagues? Speaking only for the Senate Democrats, we, hmm. we have not conferenced. There are many different people with throwing proposals around, but absolutely no sense of an agreement on anything. Um, I know that there are people raising the spectrum of judicial discretion over certain categories. I don't know whether there is significant support for that or not. Um, and I know that, speaking for myself only, um, I would be very interested in ensuring we have adequate funding for each county to be able to do the monitoring through ankle monitors or arm monitors, whatever model you want to call, that was written into the legislation but there was no new funding provided to counties. So, for example, we know that a very effective model of tracking someone who may be released but still perhaps should be monitored um, are ankle bracelets where parole group or the police department can know exactly where you are at all times, which both seems to help address the question of, you know, do we know how to find you if we need to? And also helps address, can we prove you were somewhere you weren't supposed to be and know whether you're lying or telling to the truth to us because the ankle monitor is keeping track from a GPS perspective of exactly where you are. I think that is a far superior model um, in many, many circumstances than the idea of feeling someone needs to be kept in a prison cell and actually going to court. So I would like to see 
in investment and adequate funds so that if DAs and specific counties um, around the state say we have a problem because we can't afford this, that shouldn't be a reason we can't use the system. On something you mentioned about uh, things the governor said that that dovetail with uh, priorities um, for you, the education funding debate that the governor clearly stirred up again today. Um, do you think you, you sort of seem to indicate that that Senate Democrats are interested in in changing what that looks like? I was under the impression that Senate Democrats, because of the Long Island members and some of the other suburban members, wouldn't really want to see the type of changes that the governor seemed to indicate he was favoring today by talking about not sending as much state money to wealthier districts. So with all due respect, I'm not sure anyone knows what (laughs) the governor specifically was proposing. Um, I think there is unity in much of my conference about the importance of prioritizing education money where it is most needed and high-need, low-property tax revenue districts are those districts. Um, And many of them are in upstate rural New York and in certain areas within Long Island. There are very poor districts in Long Island as there are not very poor districts within Long Island. Um, And that there is recognition of the need to prioritize investment in the schools that have the least money to provide for their students. I think there's also a sense of we can't take money away from people under the current system, but that's a separate question than growing the pie and making sure these slices of a larger pie are being correctly distributed. But I also don't know whether the governor was talking about his earlier proposal to evaluate every single school um, as if it's its own district for budget analysis. It was something he had proposed that the legislature had absolutely rejected under the belief that those numbers would never even be available to debate until five years after the kids graduated. So that wasn't really a very realistic approach, but I don't know that the governor meant that at all. Sometimes he pops up with these new proposals that you need to look at and think about. Um, But I do think that there is significant support, both houses of the legislature, for making sure that the education monies, the new education monies, are more fairly invested in the district's suffering the most on behalf of their students. So, Senator, this is the the season O uh, state of the blank speeches. Uh, the governor gave his state of the state today. There'll be state of the borough speeches. I'm, I'm going to give my state of my wardrobe address sometime next week. <laughs> uh, but the, the mayor's state of the city will come up in probably four or five weeks. And that's a question that has been raised in some of the coverage of the atmosphere in Albany this week is just what kind of reception the mayor will have to the proposals he makes for changes he might want to see to benefit the city, and who knows what that might be. I'm curious, what do you think the receptivity is in Albany to 
the mayor and to what he might put on the table. Has his relationship with Albany been damaged over the past year by the presidential campaign or other stuff? What is the state of kind of the mayor's uh, level of goodwill uh, in the state's capital? I think he got a positive response today. I did not see anything particularly different or any problem. I think, speaking as a legislator who represents New York City, I'm very clear on my job. I am elected to be a representative for all 20 million New Yorkers. My district is in New York City, so I am also elected assuming I will do the best that I can for my city. Um, and that I think every other elected official who overlaps New York City and state feels the same way. Their job is to evaluate each proposal separately and work for the best outcomes for the city and state, whether we're getting along with the current governor or mayor or whether we are not getting along with the current governor. (laughs) For the record, usually in the history of New York State, the city of New York's mayor and the governor of the state have relatively adversarial relationships. Some of it is structural, and some of it has something to do with executive egos and the kinds of people who decide to run to be <laughs> executive. Mm, indeed. And we, we should note, of course, that I think even before he gives a State of the City speech, the mayor will be likely testifying, as he does annually, in front of your uh, Senate committee, uh, the finance committee at a joint budget hearing. So that will be interesting because that's typically where the mayor lays out his Albany wish list on funding and policy items. And, and that will be, of course, an interesting conversation. Uh, a few I can't more- guarantee it'll go in that order because unlike previous years, the governor decided not to release his budget today. Mm-hmm. He has up until January 21st Right, so if it's a little later in that does, window, right. Yeah, only when he does will I be able to set the dates of the budget hearing. And we try to always respect the mayor and let him pick the day that he's going to testify. And I think you're right. He usually is testifying here before his visit to the city, but that might or might not be Gotcha. Uh, just coming back to, we just want to get your your thoughts on a couple other things. But coming back to another item, you said you, the governor talked about economic development during his state of the state speech. It's been a signature issue for him. You said there's a lot of um, consensus in, among Senate Democrats that you want to take a really hard look at economic development programming. Uh, we've heard that over the last few years at different times, whether it was actually Republicans in charge or Democrats in charge of the Senate. And there hasn't really been a lot that's changed. The governor has basically continued to run with his economic development programming. And he indicated in his speech today that um, there doesn't seem to be much course change coming, even with this budget deficit. So can you forecast for us and New Yorkers a little bit more what you're really promising to do on that front? I never promise anybody anything. I'm one legislator. I don't mean results, but... (laughs) But, Mm -hmm. so last year was our first year in the majority. Hence, anything that other people had said they were doing in previous years, I'm not going to choose to comment on. And we got into office, and we were handed a budget two weeks later, and we knew we had some concerns about the economic development models. Did we have our own alternatives, you know, in that first couple of months we were in the majority? No. We had a, you know, we had some ideas, 
Um, as you saw, there was a real concern by many around the economic deal that was going to happen with Amazon and how much money that was going to cost. You know, that blew up for lots of different reasons. Um, lots of people claim victory. Lots of people claim, you know, failure. And it almost doesn't matter other than it helped highlight that these things need to be done with more transparency and more discussion because otherwise you end up with the storyline you had where it blew up in everyone's faces for the good, the bad, the ugly. And but the punchline was that was going to be a deal that we've now learned is going to cost perhaps more than $3 billion of taxpayers' money. We have a our Committee on Investigations, um, chaired by James Skoufis, just recently came out with a report analyzing the IDAs in this state, how much of the economic development deals go through them, how many hundreds of millions of dollars are written as deals with tax impacts and lost revenue impacts by all of these little IDAs and how they're scandal-ridden with no oversight, no transparency. Um, and there's a lot of interest in reining those in. And they have a major impact on taxes at the local level and costs to the state. Um, we have any, I mean, the governor very proudly talked today about we have lower corporate taxes than we've ever had before, um, but the devil's in the details. So who has the lowest corporate taxes? Who are the winners and the losers? And have we set that up wrong? I personally believe New York State should not be in the venture capital business. We shouldn't be taking taxpayers' money from them and saying we're going to figure out how to invest and pick the winners and the losers. I personally am a much stronger believer in even playing field across the board so that everybody might see lower taxes but have um, an equal chance at success. But the research shows that small businesses and medium businesses are much more likely to create jobs than large mega business deals. So. And when you look at how much we spend through economic development, tax exemptions, and deductions, they're going to the big corporate mega deals. And I think that most of my conference agrees that that is not the right approach for New York State. It's not producing the kinds of jobs in the upstate economy that people are desperate for. And yet you can still look around and grab a storyline um, in a small newspaper you've never ever heard of in New York City saying the state made a deal with so-and-so manufacturer to come on in and we'll be paying the equivalent of $900,000 in taxpayers' money per job. That's not what people are looking for or need. First of all, in upstate New York, getting a $50,000 a year of a job is like the jackpot. So if you're going to spend $900,000 in an upstate job economic development project, let's find one where you're going to end up with 18 to 20 jobs for that amount of money, not one job. Senator, we know we need to uh, let you go on your way, but there's one more topic we wanted to discuss. We want to play actually a brief clip of the governor talking about it. It's about uh, marijuana, and this is what the governor, or a little bit of what the governor had to say earlier today. 
decades, communities of color were disproportionately affected by the unequal enforcement of marijuana laws. Last year, we righted that injustice when we decriminalized possession. This year, let's work with our neighbors, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Pennsylvania to coordinate a safe and fair system, and let's legalize adult use of marijuana. That was the governor discussing an issue, one of the issues last year where amid a, a slew of legislative achievements, marijuana fell, while, while progress was certainly made, marijuana fell short of where some people wanted to go. What did you hear and what the governor was talking about today or what you've heard on the sidelines there? Does it give you any confidence that this year will be different? Uh, is that multi-state approach something that's going to resolve some of the issues that were raised last year? Tell us where you think we realistically are on marijuana legalization. So I am very proud to have um, written, and, along with Crystal Pupil Stokes in the Assembly, and modified over and over and again the bill that I think will finally be the basis of the governor's proposal this year. We have continued to work with him and his people between last year's failure to get it done and now. Um, our The C print, the newest print of our bill is up on on the LRS now, and we, we're optimistic that when the governor rolls out his budget language, there will be many parallels of his proposal to exactly the proposal that Crystal and I have written, which has a heavy investment in putting proceeds from legalized marijuana back into the communities where the harm was done, all kinds of new opportunities for new jobs, new industries, new actual economic development in New York State, from legalizing adult marijuana, expanding access to medical marijuana products, and of course the final regulatory and legalization of hemp and CBD products. It's a complex bill. I think it's hundreds of pages long at this point. We tried to touch on all these issues. I was a participant in the governor's, I guess, Weed summit with multiple other governors in the fall. It seemed like we were all talking very similar language about where we needed to go. And while there was no commitment for all the states to go down exactly the same road at exactly the same time, it did seem to be a commitment to coordinate together the value of having similar regulatory models and legal models and working together. Um, and the other states, New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, that were participating with New York, Massachusetts came, although they've already passed their law, heavy emphasis on the racial and economic justice side of the storyline. Um, and the governor told me that day after the end of that summit how committed he was. He told me again today after his speech how committed he is. And I absolutely do believe we can get a really solid, complex, and detailed le piece of legislation passed this year. Well, that is an optimistic uh, place to leave the conversation. We'll obviously touch on a lot today, including that discussion of marijuana legalization that we'll want to check in with you about down the road. So we hope you'll come back. But uh, State Senator Liz Kruger, thanks so much for taking some time with us again. 
Thank you for having me on. Take, Take care. care. Bye. So, Mr. Murphy, thoughts on uh, on any of the uh, preceding conversation? There's a lot to dissect here from education aid to marijuana legalization and much more. Anything we didn't touch on that you want to bring up? Well, I think what's laying behind the scenes for me is this question. I think we raised it in some of the year-end stuff we did on the show and elsewhere, which is the power dynamic in Albany. And last year it seemed to shift, uh, I wouldn't say decisively, but substantially toward uh, the legislature toward the Senate, especially where progressive Democrats formed a very large majority, um, pushing the agenda. In some cases, the governor really kind of seeming to tag along on some of the major issues and obviously being big player on the other ones. I wonder how much that will be the case this year uh, or if Albany will revert to the governor being in the driver's seat, how the election, both state and federal, will will play into that. Um those are really my kind of behind the scenes dynamic questions about the situation in Albany. How about how about for you? No, well, I, you just bringing that up raises a whole bunch of interesting questions. Coming back to one of the big themes for today, which is how this budget deficit hangs over everything. And again, as Senator Kruger reminded us, we don't know when exactly the governor will present his exec- executive budget between now and January twenty first when it's required. Although he's blown through some other required deadlines on budgeting documents very recently. Um, the, the idea that there's some budget tightening that needs to happen in a state legislative election year is another layer of the dynamics here where state legislators are not going to want to have to explain to their local districts and their voters that they're bringing back, let's say, less state education funding or that state you know, lo- local property taxes need to increase to to pick up the slack on something like Medicare. It's it's going to be some very tricky discussions around the budget and the election year for legislators, especially although they're up for election every other year. So, you know, the difference may be not that big. Well, budgets are about priorities. Priorities are what matters. And if it matters and we can fit it into 55 minutes, we're probably going to talk about it here on Max and Murphy. So be sure to stay with us throughout the budget season and beyond at 5 p.m. on Wednesdays. Stay tuned now for the WBAI Evening News. Until next week, have a great week in the greatest city in the world. 